0: God we come before you and we acknowledge that you are the God of all power. Lord, there is nothing too hard for you. Lord, we give you praise that it is impossible to exhaust all of your grace and, and your power. Um, Lord, we thank you and, and lift up the Lucas Savages uh, to you. Lord thank you for a new life. Lord we acknowledge that, um, that you are the giver of life, the sustainer of life, and we give you praise for this precious little gift with Liam. Uh, Lord, thank you for a smooth delivery, Um, but Lord, we do pray uh, for healing for Tim. Uh, Lord, as he faces COVID now, and uh, Lord, just some complications uh, with seeing Liam and and Chloe, we just pray for wisdom, Uh, Lord, as they make decisions and and discernment as well, Um, and Lord, just a hedge of protection over over Chloe, uh, Evie, and, and Liam. Uh, Lord, we also want to lift up uh, the Slawsons with uh, Liz and her husband Derek, who uh, just uh, had successful triple bypass heart surgery this week. Um, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for uh, just beginning to heal him and for a successful surgery. Uh, we do pray for a continued recovery, that you would restore a health to him and give them grace during this time. We also pray for Pastor Scott Dean of Crossroads Church here in Fishers who found a mass on his kidney this week, and Lord, you know he's already faced cancer in the past. We pray as they await biopsy results that you would comfort them, sustain them, Lord, strengthen that church, Lord, during this time of uncertainty, and show yourself strong, we pray. God, we also look to you as our teacher now, Lord, as we look at Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight. Lord, help us to experience your grace found in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I I do wonder how many of us have uh, ever tried some kind of weight loss program uh, diet. Uh, I know there are a lot of them. There have been a lot of them over the years, whether it's uh, Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers or Faster Weight of Fat Loss or, you know, of course, the the Daniel diet. Uh, I'm sure some of us, if not most of us, have tried some sort of program to develop healthier uh, eating habits. And what usually sparks that is we become convinced of the need. And usually related to that is we see some sort of visual component that convinces us of that need, whether we see a picture of ourselves or like, oh, wow, like I've maybe gained some weight here, or we see that kind of gimmicky uh, side-by-side comparison of a really fit person compared to someone who's not so fit, right? It's usually related to the program. They're trying to get you to buy the product. And they're really a fit person. It's such a a gimmick. But, you know, the lighting is perfect. You know, the person has their shirt off, muscles are bulging everywhere, super flat stomach, and they're smiling and they're happy. And then the other person, the lighting's super dark and depressing. You know, they're wearing clothes, really baggy clothes, and, and they're saying, you can look like this if you try this product, right? You can have your life change completely if you use this weight loss diet program. And we've seen that ploy. And, and usually we have three main responses to this. The first one is we look at that and, and we say, I actually need that. Like, like yeah, I, I could develop some, some change. I need some growth in this area of my life and I need some better habits. And so we pursue it. The second response is we're in denial. We say, yeah, I'm not doing that bad. I'm, I'm doing okay. I, I don't really need this. I'll, I'll stop after the third donut. I won't pursue the fourth donut. It's fine. I'm fine. We're all fine. But the third reaction, though, is guilt. We look at this and we think, oh, yeah, I, I do need that. And, and maybe you would say, I've, I've needed this for some time. Or maybe I've tried once or twice with no success. And, and so you look at that and you're immediately filled with negative emotions. I think when faced with the notion of spiritual growth, we tend to have very similar responses. I think when we are confronted with the need to take some steps in our spiritual development of looking more and more like Jesus, we can respond to that and either say, yes, I need to do that. I'm convinced of that. Or we say, yeah, I don't really need that. I'm kind of in denial of this. I'm not doing that bad in comparison to other people. Or the third response is to be ridden with guilt. I think that growth is a common struggle for all Christians because it often looks very different than what we expect or even hope. That many of us are comfortable with our past salvation, coming to faith in Jesus, Many of us are very comfortable with our salvation in the future of seeing Jesus face to face in heaven. But I think many Christians struggle to work out their salvation in the present, as Paul calls us to in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And I think a big reason for that is that spiritual growth is more often assumed than intentionally learned in the Christian life. I think if some of us were really honest today... Uh, you perhaps would even say, yeah, I grew a lot spiritually early on in my relationship with the Lord or, or maybe during a particular season of my life, but right now and, and largely in my relationship with the Lord, I feel like I'm just maintaining. I think as a result, uh, some of us are ill-equipped when we're faced with some of the normal and regular experiences in the Christian life, such as spiritual dryness, or or a season of doubting, or different temptations, or fear, uh, anxiety, uh, mounting pressure from uh, the world. In fact, if I sat down with you, I said, hey, how do you grow spiritually? What does that look like practically and on the ground? I, I wonder if some of us would struggle to know how to answer that question. And I wonder if part of the reason is that we incorrectly think that grace is only needed to forgive us of our sins for salvation. And now it's basically up to me to grow until I get to heaven. As we embark uh, today on a new sermon series in Second Peter, part of my aim is that we would not only be convinced of our need to grow spiritually, but that we would be motivated, not out of guilt, but out of grace. That Peter is going to remind us that there is hope for change, that you can grow. But the way to grow, the path to grow, is actually through grace. It's a type of grace-fueled efforts. Or you can say it this way, that grace works, that grace will propel you towards working out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's why I've titled this sermon series, To Grow in Grace. I think we need a biblical vision— for spiritual growth that protects us from falling into the comparison trap, thinking, oh, I'm not as bad as this person, so I'm good, but also guards us from being motivated out of guilt. We need a biblical vision that provides a clear gospel-centered path so that looking more and more like Jesus is normative rather than an outlier, rather than just a, a particular season of our lives, that we need a biblical understanding of growth that avoids behavior modification, just addressing the exterior. But we need one that is saturated in grace, motivated by grace, and empowered by grace. And Second Peter will teach us to do just that. So this morning we're going to look at these first uh, two verses. Uh, while also looking at the background of 2 Peter. I'm going to lay a, a foundation of sorts by looking at some of the key themes that we're going to be exposed to in these three chapters, as well as looking at the historical uh, context. So jumping into the author here, Peter, uh, as verse 1 identifies, is the author of Second Peter. He calls himself a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, of course, Uh, was one of the 12 disciples, and we know that he became a significant leader, if not the leader, in the early church. What's interesting about this letter and what we know about Peter's story throughout the Gospels is a lot of his own story, a lot of what he encountered comes out in this letter. Like What we know about Peter, the way that he's portrayed in the Gospels, is that he had really high highs and really low lows, Like this guy was bold, he was courageous, but he was also reckless and impulsive. And I think some of that and what he encountered with the Lord Jesus uh, shines through in this letter. And one thing to note about Peter and what he was going through when he wrote this is that he was sitting in a Roman prison waiting to die. It's just a matter of months before he will actually be executed uh, for being a follower of Jesus and a preacher of uh, the gospel. And although we don't know this for certain, um, what we're told historically is that they wanted to execute Peter the same way as Jesus. They wanted to crucify him. But before they did so, Peter said, I'm not worthy enough to be to be um, put to death in the same way as my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so they flipped him upside down to crucify him. And I think that's important as we kind of think about Peter and the condition that he's in and and sensing that the end is near as it provides a sense of urgency as we read this letter. See, Peter knew that his time was short, that death was imminent according to chapter 1 verse 14. And so it feels like every word, every page is just bleeding with urgency. Of, Of course, I think we would say that every letter from a loved one matters, But imagine the increased urgency if you knew that that loved one was dying as they wrote that letter to you. That's what we have here uh, with 2 Peter. This is a letter from a dying man, his last words, if you will, that's meant to have lasting impact. Now, another reason why I think this letter has a sense of urgency is due to the condition of the recipient's. Chapter 3, verse 1 states that, that this second epistle that Peter uh, has, has written uh, has the same audience as 1 Peter. Now, the recipients of 1 Peter were those Christian exiles. Uh, who were persecuted and forced to become scattered all throughout uh, what would be Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey now. You can um, see that, if my laser will work, just under the the Black Sea, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. That's the area where these Christians were. And what's interesting here is that these Christians are, are, through persecution and through being scattered, we, we notice that the gospel is going forth that the gospel is spreading, that some of these other churches like in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth were established, but the enemy doesn't want the gospel to, to, be, to, to, to spread. And yet through the use of persecution, the gospel does just that. And so first Peter was written, uh, of course, by Peter to help these believers experiencing persecution, trying to encourage them and give them a type of steadfastness. Second Peter is written for a different reason, Second Peter is primarily written uh, because of the pressure from within the church, not from outside the church. There were false teachers and false teaching going on uh, that was compromising uh, the gospel message, and so Peter is writing that. Now, more specifically, though, if you look at the second half of verse 1, Peter describes the recipients as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to know that this word faith is used differently than how we typically talk about faith. When we talk about faith, we might use it as a synonym for trust or belief or maybe even a mental assent. That's not how Peter's using that word here. Uh, he, he's not even using this word as a way to, to say that this is a summary of doctrine. Peter's using this word here as a reference to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jude uses faith in a similar manner. Jude uh, Jude 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith or the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, so, so Peter right here in the beginning is stressing the fact that the faith that they've obtained or the faith that they've received is of equal standing with ours, according to Peter, in order to help them understand their embeddedness in the wider Christian community. He's trying to, to remind them that this faith or this gospel is not mythic. It's not open to be modified according to your liking, but it's actually part of the wider church. That's important because he's laying a foundation for his argument that he's going to build upon, especially in chapter two, when he starts talking about false teaching and false teachers. Now, the other thing to point out about verse one is notice that this faith or this gospel is obtained or received by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, this faith, the good news of Jesus, is a gift. It is not earned through spiritual performance. It's not worked for uh, by religious activity. And it is not deserved by moral living. It's a gift. But notice, he doesn't say through Jesus' blood on the cross. He says that the gospel, this faith, is received or obtained through Jesus' righteousness. Isn't that interesting? He didn't talk about Jesus' blood, he talks about Jesus' righteousness. Now, why? Well, R.C. Sproul talks about the need for Jesus' righteousness this way. He says, our Redeemer needed not only to die, but also to live a life of perfect obedience. The righteousness that he manifested could then be transferred to all who put their trust in him. Just as my sin is transferred to him on the cross when I trust in him, his righteousness is transferred to my account in the sight of God. So when I stand before God on the judgment day, God is going to see Jesus and his righteousness, which will be my cover. By his obedience, he redeemed his people for eternity. Well, this is really important because when we talk about what it means to be saved. We talk about how do you know if you truly are a Christian? How do you know that you have received salvation? We typically say something to the effect of, "Well, I've put my faith in Jesus, and he because he died on the cross for my sins," and we kind of stop there, as if that is what it means to be saved. And that's a great start. Of course, it's awesome that Jesus took away our sin by being uh, the, the penalty by, by paying our uh, our debt and our and our penalty but we also need his righteousness in order to be accepted before God. God's standard of acceptance is perfection. So we needed Jesus's righteousness to then be transferred over into our accounts, or as Paul put it in, in Colossians 3, to be hidden in Jesus. So when God looks at us, we are no longer sinner, but we are saint or we are made righteous because we're hidden in Jesus. So Peter is establishing that reality right here in the beginning, that it's Jesus' righteousness that allows us access before God, and it is a gift, it's all because of grace. Now, this takes us to verse 2, where Peter introduces a few of the major themes that will run throughout this entire letter. Verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I would just this one verse, he gives us a foretaste of some of the major themes throughout Second Peter. In fact, there are five main themes that I want to expose us to here uh, this morning. Here's the first one, probably the most significant, is Peter will uh, expose us to a type of grace that transforms, type of grace that transforms. There are 131 occurrences of the word grace throughout the Bible. That's a lot. Grace is one of the major themes throughout the Old and the New Testaments. And yet I would argue that 2 Peter provides the most robust doctrine of grace than any other book in the entire Bible. That what Peter does here is he shows us the different aspects of grace. He doesn't just say that grace is what saves us, he will also show us how grace transforms us. Okay, now let's zoom out for a moment. Uh, A very basic uh, and the shortest definition of grace is that it is undeserved favor, undeserved favor. And yes, grace saves us. Grace is what justifies us before a holy God. Romans chapter three, verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I don't want to minimize this aspect of grace. Grace is what inclines God to give gifts that are free and undeserved by sinners. It's a free gift. You don't work for grace. You don't earn it. You surely do not deserve it. Okay, that's important. But this, this other aspect of, P, of, of grace that Peter exposes us to is that when grace invades your life, it brings about transformation, when grace comes into your life, it changes you and it grows you. A couple of verses throughout the New Testament talks about grace in this way. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Okay, so that, uh, that aspect of grace almost alludes to grace being a power or an influence for obedience. Uh, 2 Corinthians twelve nine says, "'My grace is Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.'" Okay? So this is important to know. Grace is not only a disposition or a quality or uh, an inclination in God's nature towards sinners— But grace is a power, an influence, an acting of God that works in us to change our capacities for godly living. And I find that so helpful as Peter broadens our understanding of grace uh, so so that it has these different layers that we see throughout the New Testament. One of the ways that we're going to see this is just by how many mentions uh, Peter has of grace throughout these three chapters in fact, he bookends this letter talking about grace. Chapter 1, verse 2, talked about grace. The last verse, chapter 3, verse 18, he talks about uh, grace. And in fact, uh, I find verse 18 of chapter 3 to be the most important exhortation in this entire letter. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, All right? So you can grow in it. It's not just something that you receive, it's not just something that saves you. It's not stagnant, but you, you can grow in it. You can be transformed by it. You can be changed by grace. Now, remember Peter's story. Peter knew all about grace. Like, if you know the Gospels, you know kind of more about who he was, who, who, uh, what he demonstrated. In fact, in Luke 22, we find Peter, after spending three years with Jesus, seeing the miracles hearing the teachings, being in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And in Luke chapter 22, we find him denying Jesus three times. At one point he says, I don't even know who you're talking about referring to Jesus. Now, after the resurrection, what does Jesus do with Peter? Does he shun Peter? Does he throw him out into the world and say, you're of no use? No, Jesus shows Peter grace undeserved favor. He actually reinstates Peter in John chapter 21. He has that famous conversation over breakfast, you know, on the beach there, where perhaps because of the fact that Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Grace, undeserved favor. And of course, we know that Peter became a significant leader in the early church. Look, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, you've had that same encounter with grace. You've had that same type of experience where the grace of God, this undeserved favor, has invaded your life, where your sins are not only forgiven, but it has transformed you. You're marked by grace because you know what you actually deserve. Like because of our sin, what we actually deserve is judgment. What we actually deserve is wrath what we actually deserve, what would be fair and just from a holy God is hell. That's what should have been ours. And if you know about grace, your, your life is marked by grace because you don't deserve anything that God has given you. Because out of God's grace, he has not only withheld those things, he's also given you forgiveness. He's given you righteousness. He's given you eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. So just stop for a moment and think, what would your life be like? Where would you be without the grace of God? Like everything that you've received is of grace, something that you do not deserve. And look, I think, man, if we could just be honest with each other today, we become so entitled in our relationship with God. Uh, we start to compare ourselves with other people, other Christians, where we think, well, I've been given salvation, but so is this person, but this person also has a better house than me, or, or better well-behaved kids than me, or better marriage, or, or a better job, or they, they just seem like they have it all together. And we can bring kind of this sense of entitlement of I deserve this, that God should give me A, B, and C. And we can bring that into our relationship with God when we start complaining. We might experience uh, trials, and we think, wow, this this trial was hard. Well, this person has gone through a trial, so okay, this is okay. But man, I went through another trial, and another trial, more suffering. And this person just, their life is just a charmed life. And we can think, man, this isn't fair. And we can bring that in our relationship with God. Look, church, Nothing about our lives is fair. There's nothing about our relationship with God that is fair. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal condemnation. And yet out of God's grace, he has shown us mercy in Jesus in order to save us and forgive us and give us eternal life in heaven with him forever and ever. Everything beyond that is icing on the cake. Everything else is just extra, to be honest with you. And so this this aspect, this multi-layered understanding of grace should make us the most grateful and thankful people on the face of the planet. I think grace is going to challenge us and stretch us in that way. Let me give you a foretaste of what we're going to be confronted with as we think about this category of a grace-fueled effort in spiritual growth. Just a couple of verses here. Peter says in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For this very reason make every effort, right, to supplement your faith with virtue. And he goes on and lists different characteristics. Just because you've received grace and you didn't work for it or earn it doesn't mean that you receive it and and, and you sit uh, on a chair and and sit all comfortable spiritually. No, if grace has come into your life, you will make every effort to grow in that grace. And that's not a works-based salvation. We're not talking about earning favor or righteousness before God. We're talking about in our sanctification, and this kind of mystery of how we look and become more and more like Jesus Christ, there is a mystery where it's God's grace working in us, and and, and through that, we are uh, exerting every effort and working and toiling as we pursue the Lord Jesus in godliness and holiness. Another verse, chapter 1, verse 10, "'Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent.'" to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Look, grace-fueled effort. We're going to need that category as we look over the next couple of weeks. All right, second theme, key theme, I think is also important, is the centrality and the importance of the knowledge of God. The word knowledge appears some, in some form 16 different times in three chapters. Okay, we're going to see that word over and over and over again. Why? Well, if we remember the context here, we remember that, that these believers have not only experienced pressure from outside the church in the form of persecution, they're experiencing pressure from within the church in the form of false teaching and false teachers. So to meet this danger, Peter writes this letter, second Peter, and he wants to warn and exhort them, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And what's so encouraging and I think challenging is that Peter's primary solution to false teaching is knowledge according to true doctrine. Peter wants to establish, strengthen, and stabilize these Christians in the true knowledge Of God. See, the apostles knew that after their death, the gospel message uh, would be challenged and even discarded by many. That the gospel message would be uh, that that people would dispute it and, and try to water it down, try to modify it. And so, what the churches needed the most was true knowledge of God that's found ultimately in God's word. I find this so helpful for us today even practical, relevant. As we look around in our culture today, it's not hard to see that people are searching. People are longing for answers, for knowledge, for truth, and for direction. And what's so interesting about that is we live in an age in which relativism runs rampant. This idea where truth is whatever it means to you, that you can have your truth And I can have my truth, and if they contradict one another, well, it doesn't matter as long as you're being true to yourself, whatever that means. (laughs) That's the default mindset as we think about the culture that we're living in. And yet what we have, church, we have strong confidence, a sure confidence in God's word about having objective truth, real knowledge about God, because it's not found within us. It's found in the author of truth, who is God himself. So I find this point here that's going to be stressed so practical for us, that as we're interacting with neighbors and coworkers and friends, as they're longing for direction in life and truth and knowledge, we have a reliable footing. We have a sure foundation that can keep us from stumbling, that can keep us from from confusion. Our, Our culture is so confused about so many things. And yet we have clarity, we have direction, the word is a lamp unto our feet that we can rely upon. And we will be challenged throughout these three chapters from various angles to put our feet upon the solid ground. In fact, this is how uh, Peter put it, just a couple of verses related to that point. Chapter 1, verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Chapter 3, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away uh, with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Chapter 2, verse 14, this is uh, talking about false teachers, false teaching. It says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, right? So look, Peter is writing this letter so we will not lose our own stability, but we'll find strength and a sure footing in the true knowledge of God. So needed in a culture where there's sinking sand and confusion all around us. Well, that naturally leads us to the, th- the third main theme that's connected to that, and that is uh, devotion to uh, the scriptures. There are two significant passages in this letter that deals specifically with the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. Chapter 1, verses 16 to 19, and chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Those are really key verses as they shape uh, our understanding of how to even view the scriptures. So helpful when you find the scriptures that talk about the scriptures to give us a, a doctrine and an understanding of God's word. But Peter Will call us to renew our confidence in the God of scriptures by reminding us of the inerrancy of God's word. God's word's trustworthy, but it's also sufficient. And yet, at the same time, Peter will encourage us about what he talks about in relationship to the scriptures. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says, Just as our beloved brother Paul, okay, so the Apostle Paul, who's written many letters in the New Testament, also, wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, he says. Now, when you read that, you kind of laugh out loud. Peter's talking about Paul's writings being hard to understand. And we all say amen if you've ever read Romans, especially Romans 9 through 11. It kind of makes your head explode. This is encouraging here. And notice the tension that Peter is trying to manage here. That on one hand, he wants us to believe and understand that God's word is authoritative. It's true, it's inerrant, it's sufficient. But at the same time, it's hard to understand. It's complicated, it's deep. There's some things in here that are really hard to grasp. And look, I think we need both. We need confidence, but we need humility as we approach God's word. That that this isn't something that's just kind of easy to to digest and easy to understand. And what Peter demonstrates for us is that when we have both, it creates a type of humility, a type of dependency, a a thirstiness for God's word as we rely on the spirit of God to reveal the word of God. Like if you have one without the other, the confidence and humility, it's going to lead you into a type of prideful arrogance in regard to God's word, or it'll lead you to being unstable, a type of a wishy-washy Christianity, if you will. So we need both, and Peter demonstrates and calls us to holding on to both. Well, that leads us to the fourth uh, major theme. I've already alluded to it. Peter's going to train us in how to identify the danger of false teachers and false teaching. Again, Peter is writing because of the pressure from within that these churches are faced with. And Peter will rebuke, he will warn, and he will correct false teaching. There is no other place in all of the scriptures in which you'll find stronger language against false teaching and false teachers. Peter will share insights in how to identify uh, the arrival of false teaching, how to identify the character of false teachers, and then even to remind us of the future judgment of false teachers. Peter actually calls them false teachers because they've tried to bring heresies of destruction into congregations uh, through the use of deceptive means. And at the heart of their heresy is is twofold. What these false teachers were uh, were kind of attacking is the second coming of Jesus and then the judgment of God. So they're coming in and they're teaching these churches, uh, Jesus isn't coming back. He's not going to bring the new heavens and the new earth. And furthermore, you're not going to be held responsible or held accountable for how you live your life. There's no judgment of God. And so they're kind of pressing in on those two matters. And of course, it's not hard for us to imagine how that leads into immorality. If you're being taught, hey, you're not going to stand before a holy God and give an account. And if you're being taught that Jesus isn't coming back, that leads to a type of you only live once type of a lifestyle, just live it up. Like, like, this is all that we have. Why not pursue immorality? That's what was being taught here in these churches. And so Peter is calling them to a true knowledge and to sound doctrine related to those two aspects within uh, the Christian life. And at the same time, as he is rebuking these false teachers and, and trying to correct some false teaching, he pastorally encourages this church. Chapter two, verse nine, he says, "'Then the Lord knows.'" how to rescue the godly from trials, how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Well, if you know your Bible, uh, you also probably have picked up on the, uh, the, the close parallels between 2 Peter and Jude. If you've ever read those letters, you of think, wait, I, I've seen this written somewhere else. This sounds familiar. Well, there are countless parallels from Jude and in 2 Peter. It's almost like they copied uh, these different verses uh, off of each other. They write similarly. They They have the same themes and the same language and the same tone. They're both addressing false teaching and false teachers. And we've got two epistles in the New Testament who are basically addressing the same issue. Now, why? Why did the Spirit of God find it a necessity to address false teaching and false doctrine? It's because of of the work of Satan, of enemy, who's trying to, to not only sow discord among the brethren, but he's trying to bring confusion about the gospel message and what sound doctrine is. Like, he knows, and we need to be reminded that it only takes one generation for Christianity to become extinct. One generation, where as we're trying to pass on the baton of faith, the the baton of the gospel message onto the next generation, one fumbling of that for Christianity to look drastically different than it does today. And if that was true in the first century, as these apostles are are dying out or or they're being imprisoned and, and the soundness of doctrine is at stake, how true is it for us today to be reminded of how to identify false doctrine, false teaching, and how to keep the soundness of the gospel front and center. Look, It's a good reminder for us that as a church, Pennington Park Church, we do not exist just for us in this room. We exist for the next generation as well. We exist to, to leave a, a lasting legacy of passing the baton of faith on to the next generation so that the gospel can go forth in power. And what is at stake there is holding tight to sound doctrine. Now, and that's one of the reasons uh, why Peter's tone throughout this letter is unlike most letters throughout the New Testament. He's less pastoral and more hostile Peter uses fighting words, if you will, throughout this letter, very, very strong words as he wages war on those who are trying to bring confusion uh, on the gospel. If you're looking for a fluffy, le- a fluffy letter, a letter to kind of make you feel good, warm and fuzzy, 2 Peter's not the letter uh, for you. He understands what is at stake for those who are trying to bring confusion on uh, the gospel. Well, this brings us to the fifth and last uh, key theme. I'll be brief with this. Uh, but he also emphasizes Jesus' second coming. And this is important because, again, the false teachers were disputing uh, this reality. So when he get to chapter 3, Peter writes extensively, and I would even say specifically, about his eschatology, about the last days, the end times. He even provides, I think, a very helpful timeline in understanding the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. But as we saw last fall, Peter also demonstrates how deeply practical eschatology really is. Peter will demonstrate for us how your belief about the future directly impacts how you live today in the present. In fact, as he gets towards the end of chapter 3, he will show us how anticipating and longing for the coming of Jesus creates a hope-filled waiting that results in steadfastness. He says this in chapter 3, verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise— We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So those are some of the themes that we have to look forward to as we just begin uh, this this new book of the Bible. Really excited for all that God has for us. And before we close, I just wanted to provide for us and lay before you three brief challenges uh, over the next 12 weeks. The first one that I would challenge you with is every week to set aside 10 minutes and read 2 Peter in its entirety, okay? It'll only take you 10 minutes. If you're an average reader, 10 minutes to read three chapters of the Bible. You can do it as you're preparing, even for Sunday morning. This will help you immensely to see how these themes are connected and related to one another. In fact, this is how it would have worked in the early church. As Peter uh, wrote 2 Peter to these churches, they would have stood up and read the letter in its entirety, and so to do that on a weekly basis, I think will help and aid us in our journey throughout 2 Peter. Okay, the second challenge I have for us is for us to memorize chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. We are going to do this as a church. That's roughly one verse per week as we spend 12 weeks on Second Peter. Okay, so our assignment for next Sunday is to memorize chapter 1, verse 3. And what we're going to do is that I'm just going to call on random people. To, I'm just kidding. we will do that. That'll help with our growth issue, right? No, but, but come ready. Come, you know, prepare to, to be able to recite that. We'll probably do that as a church as we begin our time each week. Uh, there's nothing like hiding God's word in our hearts as we memorize the scriptures uh, together. And that's a really important section. Related to that section in uh, Second Peter The third challenge, is I would ask you to press into your accountability. If you have an accountability partner, spouse, a friend, a small group, I'm gonna ask you uh, for you to demonstrate humility and to go to them and and to allow them to inspect your life in relationship to the nine virtues listed in chapter one, verses three through 11. As Peter calls us to add and to develop those nine virtues, we have to acknowledge the fact that we all have blind spots. We all have areas of our life that we can't see. And so we need the accountability of other brothers and sisters in the Lord to be able to point out those things and for us to ask, hey, how am I doing with steadfastness? How am I doing with brotherly affection? And just to sit and receive what they have to say for you so we can grow as we think about a type of grace, uh, a fueled effort, okay? So I'm excited. I can't wait to dive in. But just to remember, our aim here is to grow in grace. Just like those Weight Watcher programs, to see the need to grow, right? To see the need to develop spiritually, but not motivated out of guilt, motivated out of grace. That out of God's grace, we might look more and more like Jesus. Not because of our own willpower, but because we are growing in a way that's saturated and motivated and empowered by his grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for your word. God, we love your word. We desire it, we thirst for it. It is like honey to our lips. Lord, it leads us to life and joy and fullness in you. God, thank you that it is alive and active, that it's sharp, that it pierces us and convicts us. So God, I pray as we embark on this 12-week study in Second Peter, that you would conform your people to the image of Jesus. God, that each week we would look more and more like Jesus as you, through your word and your spirit, chisel and break off pieces of sin that are part of our lives. So, Lord, go before us as a church. Help us, Lord, to grow in grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.